Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We first met hardscrabble Colorado ranchers Rennie and Ben Cross in Laura Pritchett's debut collection. And now in her novel, Stars Go Blue, just released this month, they are estranged elderly spouses living on opposite ends of their sprawling ranch. Faced with the particular decline of a fading farm, and Ben struggle with Alzheimer's disease. He's just on the cusp of dementia. He's able to recognize he's sick, but unable to do anything about it. And the notes he leaves in his pockets and around the house to remind him of himself and his family and his responsibilities are no longer as helpful as they used to be. Watching his estranged wife forced into caretaking, and brought to her breaking point, Ben decides to leave his life with whatever dignity and grace remains. As he makes this decision, however, a new horrible truth comes to light. Ray, the abusive husband of their late daughter, is being released from prison early. This opens old wounds in Ben, his wife's surviving daughter and four grandchildren. Branded with a need for justice, Ben must act before his mind leaves him, and he sets off during a brutal snowstorm to confront the man who murdered his daughter. Rennie, realizing he's missing, sets off to either stop or witness her husband's act of vengeance. That's the gripping plot of uh, Stars Go Blue. Laura Pritchett is author of other books, including Skybridge, Hell's Bottom, Colorado, Great Colorado Bear Stories, Pulse of the River, Homeland, and Going Green. She's published over 100 essays and short stories in numerous magazines. She has a Ph.D. in English from Purdue and is a faculty member at Pacific University's Low Residency MFA program and Denver's Lighthouse Writers. She teaches around the country. And when not writing or teaching, can generally be found outside in Colorado's mountains. Laura Pritchett, welcome to the program. Thanks so much for having me. Appreciate you uh, being with us. Are you, are you talking to us from your from your uh, from your house? I am. Yep, uh, from a rural area in northern Colorado. Sounds uh, just back from Utah, actually. Yeah, that's true. It sounds beautiful there, where where you live. It, it's gorgeous, right in the foothills. Uh, Utah and Colorado share a lot of natural wonders. Yeah. Uh, so as you mentioned, you just uh, did a, a, a reading at the King's English Bookshop in Salt Lake City. Uh, what strikes you as you go back and forth between the, the two states? A lot of similarities, probably some differences as well. Well, there's wonderful bookstores in both. Yeah. <laughs> the King's English was wonderful. But yes, I'm a, I'm a creature of place. Um, I'm a Colorado native, grew up on a ranch in northern Colorado, and spend a lot of time outdoors in one of these western states. I like to consider myself a professional westerner (laughs) Uh aha and uh i wonder if you could tell us a little bit about growing up in in a rural area i think when you were seven your parents moved to a a ranch they did to a ranch that's close to where i live now actually i moved away in adulthood and decided to come back uh, it being one of the greatest places on earth i think but the ranch experience really changed me of course um was, uh, there's a lot of birth and death um, chores and work and on a ranch, and um, I was either involved with them or trying to escape all that work by reading books. So literature and writing and uh, outdoors are all very connected in my own mind. Sounds like a great childhood. Not bad. Yeah. Fly fishing and reading and <laughs> yeah. hanging out with brothers. Yeah. And in fact, you were reading a... Uh an interview that you gave a few years ago on Rocky Mountain News. Uh, here's how you describe it. Uh, you say it was a beautiful thing, talking about your childhood on, on the ranch, because I was suddenly thrown into an outdoor world in which you come to understand life and death on a very real basis. Calves are dying in your kitchen, your cat's giving birth in your closet, there are raccoons running around and peacocks. You just learn to love the chaos of life 
And you'd go on to say it makes you pretty sturdy in a wonderful way. <laughs> I think it does. And yes, it, we had an unusual ranch in that there were peacocks and donkeys and raccoons and other wild creatures around, <laughs> um, or other interesting creatures around, I should say. But yeah, I do think that growing up on a ranch, uh, particularly this one, perhaps um, made me sturdy, which was helpful for my writing, because you have to be sturdy to be a writer, and I think you have to be sturdy to be a writer who's willing to tackle tough subjects uh, and try to be as honest as possible, even if it makes you squirm or makes other people squirm. So, uh, I guess, ranch life, you're confronting life and death, and I guess they're chores to do every day, the, you know, the cows won't wait, uh, that sort of thing, the, the work, what, what about it makes you sturdy? Well, I think that uh, the thing that struck me the most as a child and later as an adult is just the willingness to look at death and birth head on and to find ways to reduce suffering and uh, and to be a part of that cycle of life. It sounds cliche, but it's not. There's just a lot of uh, there's just a lot of birth and death going on, and that really was, has been important to my writing. Um, also, it just makes me sturdy in the sense of any time I get a rejection letter from a from a magazine or something, I, th- I think, uh, well, it's not the same as watching a calf suffer and die. You know, mm-hmm. puts yeah. everything in perspective. Yeah, I guess, I guess there's perspective there. Uh, you you said you would climb into the the barn loft and read. That's one way you'd escape from all the all the chaos. What what did you read? I started reading classics early on, and I have uh, my mother and librarians and uh, middle school English teachers to thanks for that. But um, I, in my first diary, I wrote, I want to be a writer just like Laura Ingalls Wilder. Hmm. <laughs> and I wrote that at age seven. But then I, uh, I remember reading a lot of uh, uh, Willa Cather. I read Les Miserables by Victor Hugo. I read a lot of Shakespeare early on. Um, because I had a teacher that helped guide me through it. Um, a lot of writers of the West, um, and then Hemingway, Faulkner, all the greats. One of the uh, reviewers, these would be the, I guess you call them regular people reviewers on Amazon. By the way, you get, you get great reviews uh, consistently across the board for this this book, so congratulations on that. Uh, they, they said that uh, this uh, sort of, let me see, plays out like a modern Western rendition of a Shakespearean tragedy. And in fact, you have Shakespearean quotes at the head of the sections of of this book. Yeah, while I was writing a book, I was thinking, um, I was walking with my dad. My dad has had Alzheimer's for 13 years, and I walked the ranch with him several times a week. And I was struck with the way he became a bit of a poet, he wasn't naturally. He was a scientist, a geneticist, and a rancher, and a father of nine. But he started to invent words for the words he couldn't think of, and they were so poetic. And that immediately flipped my brain back to Shakespeare uh, and the way so many of our words and phrases come from Shakespeare. And, um, boy, if anyone could invent gorgeous language, it was it was him. And then I started thinking of King Lear, of course, because King Lear has dementia and his daughter, Ophelia keeps uh, hoping that he'll recognize her. And so my book is not a retelling of King Lear, but it's a riffing off of it, I mm. would say. Yeah, the, definitely, uh, you know, even before I sort of uh, focused in on, on those passages from Lear that you, that you quote, uh, there, there, is, there are some parallels. Um, you, 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 go ahead. 
Oh, I just wanted to apologize. I said Ophelia, but I meant Cordelia. Oh, yes. Sorry. Yes, <laughs> yes. i got to get my Shakespeare right. <laughs> uh, King Lear, Act 4, Scene 7. This is how you open the book. Uh, he says, I, I fear I am not in my perfect mind. Methinks I should know you and know this man. Yet I am doubtful, for I am mainly ignorant what place this is. Uh, tell us a little bit about Ben, Ben Cross. He's, we first met these characters, Ben and Rennie. Uh, 2001 was your was your collection, right, where we first met these people? Yes, Hell's Bottom, Colorado is my first book, and it's a collection of short stories. And they're, each story is told from the member of a ranching family, um, and they all connect loosely. And Ben and Rennie were the patriarch and matriarch of this ranch, and their daughter had been murdered by her abusive husband. And that sent them to opposite ends of their ranch. They were still running the ranch together and trying to communicate and love each other through the horror and the sorrow, uh, but they just weren't quite able to do so. And those two characters kept living on in my, in my mind. Many authors will tell you that, that we invent characters and they stay with us for a long time. And I knew I wanted to write about them again, particularly Ben, because he's a gentle, wise rancher who has a lot to say, I think, about the world and... Uh, humanity and our effort to live real and true lives. And so I knew he was going to come back up in some book. And then when my father was diagnosed with dementia, probably Alzheimer's, I knew that that was going to happen to Ben as well so that I could write about both Ben and my father. Uh, Ben is fictional, of course. He's not my father exactly, but I'm using the raw material of my real life of experiencing Alzheimer's to, uh, to render Ben in the most accurate way possible he uh you know ben is a is a fascinating character uh, his humanity does come through although you know he has some problems um there's a phrase that that sort of harkened for me all you know the, the ranchers i know there's a there's a, a phrase he says tell you what i'm going to do see um and his daughter carolyn reminds him of that um this i don't know if that comes from your father but that, that rang very true to me so you know just sort of uh a brief, terse phrase like that, that this, this sort of paints the picture. Yes. It did come from my father, actually, and he used to say, I'll tell you what I'm going to do, see? And then it would uh, be followed by, I'm going to make you do the dishes, or <laughs> I'm going to ask you to go irrigate. Yeah. <laughs> Always very gentle and kind, and, but it was his way of uh, letting us know that he had some uh, proclamation that was about yeah. to <laughs> issue forth. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, he's this paragraph. Uh, it's very early. He he. This is from the point of view of, of Ben, and you alternate between uh, Ben and and his wife Rennie for 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 a lot of the book. Um, says he's not supposed to feel bad about the things he can't remember, although he's allowed to feel bad about the fact that this disease only gets worse. Deeper still, he has clarified that he's allowed the terror and the claustrophobia of wanting to say words that are dammed up inside. It, it must be, I don't know if you've had conversations with your father or others, Alzheimer's Association, but it must be terrifying inside, I guess, until you get to the point where you can't remember anything. Yes, exactly. When he was first diagnosed, we were able to speak of the disease quite a bit. Uh, then he lost knowledge that he had the disease, and we couldn't. Um, and now he's lost language altogether, and we mostly just whistle things like cool, clear water and you are my sunshine. But um, he was very scared. Of course, it's a very scary diagnosis to know that you're losing words. And around the same time, I started to have dreams where I couldn't speak. The, the words were caught in my throat, and I, I think that was my brain trying to understand what it must be like for him. 
and it, and it was terrifying to to have thoughts and emotions roiling around but be unable to articulate them. At an Alzheimer's meeting, Rennie, his wife, uh, is encouraged to describe this. She's she's kind of cantankerous, isn't she? Uh, um, <laughs> yes, she and is. so she's reluctant to get up and share, but she does she does get up and and describe the disease in pretty stark terms. Uh, she says it's like. Well, maybe you could describe it. It's it's like putting your toe in a cold river, and then and then getting deeper and deeper. Yes, I think she says something like it's like dipping your toe in water, and then a little bit more, and a little bit more until you're finally submerged. And uh, she also describes it as a uh, as a, similar to a horse galloping around. The disease is galloping into Ben's mind, and he can't stop it. He can't corner it. Mm-hmm. And I think she's. This is interior uh, to it. She doesn't express this, but it's probably very true. Feelings that caregivers might have, and and then might feel guilty about it. She thinks, well, why, you know, why couldn't he have died? At, you know, just wreck his truck or something. Why did he? Why does he have to go through this? And so, so she's kind of wanting him to die, and and then terrified of of his death as well. Yeah, the the greatest response to this book, I think, so far has been oh, hundreds of emails I've gotten from caretakers who say thank you for rendering the difficult task of caregiving. It's not that Rennie is unsympathetic uh, or horrible, but she's she's trying to say it like it is, and caretaking is is a real burden that takes away your own time on earth and your own life. And she's she's a bit bitter and angry, even if she tries to be patient and kind and. I think trying to capture Rennie's caregiving and how exhausted she is without exhausting the reader or irritating the reader, that was a real trick in writing the book. But the one thing I wanted to do was express her experience honestly. And it's not always so pretty. Yeah, and uh, reading the reviews and people who, uh, it seems like you've touched something, you'd, you'd probably walk that line pretty well, uh, especially on the point of view, as you say, of the caregivers. I wonder if you could uh, read a passage for us, uh, page 16. You've got your book sure. in front of you. Um, this sort of gets us to a plot point, um, but but takes us inside Rennie's mind here. So starting in the middle of the page, she should be more generous, but she can't muster the energy, and continuing to the page 17. Sure. So this is from Rennie's point of view. Uh, they alternate chapters, and Rennie is the caregiver, and here's what she has to say. She should be more generous, but she can't muster the energy. She will not tell the true, real truth to these people, or the deepest truth. For there are, of course, many versions, layering on one another like snow. And the deepest layer is as dangerous as the ice underneath. It can kill a person, in fact. The real truth, no. It must be covered with something slightly softer. She has seen the bottle of sodium pentarbital that Ben no doubt stole from Reuben when the vet came over to put down the old mother donkey. She's surprised that Ben had the presence of mind to do such a thing, only not because from time to time his quiet, sharp mind sometimes flickers through. Sometimes his mind is working fine. It's just that the words are damned up. And it's because of his deep intelligence, she fell in love with him in the first place because he was, in fact, so bright, that he's able to often find replacement words or different phrases that express what his mind still holds to be true. Those moments make her so happy. Ben had hit the bottle very well, but he had also left a note in the pocket of his jeans, pink juice on top shelf in back room barn. 
When she looked, there was, in fact, a clean bottle and two plastic-wrapped new syringes sitting on a dusty, dark shelf right alongside the coffee cans full of U-nails and dusty orange ear tags. It is breaking her heart. It is cracking her in two. But she must hold steady and strong. She simply will not tell that truth. No. So the plot point, of course, is that, uh, and this is revealed in the blurb, so we're not revealing anything too much, that uh, Ben has decided that uh, at a certain point, before it gets too bad, he's, he's, he's going to relieve his wife of the burden of caring for him. He's going to kill himself. He is. And, and before he does that, he also wants to face down Ray, the man who murdered his daughter. Yeah. And I think this kind of plot would only work with a rancher. <laughs> I'm, glad, you know, I'm glad I've been around ranching and, and pink juice and, and have seen many animals put down before because Ren has a certain sense of justice that um, and um, I guess end of life care decisions that I've seen ranchers have uh, I guess more clearly than uh, than others simply because they've had to put down animals who are suffering or mm-hmm. at least consider it or wonder what to do or to know how to do it how to palpate ribs and inject uh, the right amount of CCs in the right place so uh, it's a critical it is a critical plot point for the book yes. Later on, uh, you know, I'm trying to be careful not to give away too much, but um, you find out that, uh, I, I think if I've understood it correctly, Ben has written a note to himself to tell himself to, to you know, to trust this note, trust trust the person who's writing it, um, and it gives instructions on, on how, to, how to carry out the, you know, killing himself. That's right. He, um, he has a note, uh, and he's written it while his mind was strong, and it, I was trying to speak to the different versions of the self that happen with Alzheimer's. Um, I think one keeps changing and moving into new selves. And, of course, I was also thinking of King Lear at the same time. Uh, there's, a, there's a little bit of a parallel there in that he keeps wanting to run the country and be his old self and uh, trying to remind himself of the power and prestige he once had, and yet he's, and yet he's changing. So... Um, yeah, there's a lot going on there with identity and trusting trusting one's own inner core. Mm-hmm. There's the, the the metaphor earlier that Rennie uses that could, could apply here. The you know, different layers of snow, snow on ice, uh, a lot of different layers there, a lot of different selves, especially apparent with 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 the person with dementia. Exactly. Yes. Thanks for noticing that. Yeah, her that's meant to be a metaphor for his mind as well. Mm-hmm. There, there's a passage where uh, he's uh, this from his point of view, and he's thinking about. The, he's telling himself that he's he's done a lot of killing in his life, mostly out of mercy, sometimes not. And the, you you just talked about that. that ranchers are involved a lot with with death. They sure are, and good ranchers, and the vast majority of ranchers I know are good ranchers. Their primary goal, I think, is to keep animals healthy and uh, to reduce suffering hmm. whenever possible. So. If you just joined us, we're talking with Laura Pritchett. She's an award-winning author, most recently a novel, Stars Go Blue, which uh, describes an estranged elderly couple living on opposite ends now of their sprawling ranch, faced with the decline of their fading farm, and and uh, the husband, Ben's struggle with Alzheimer's disease. Rennie, the wife, is uh, a caregiver. Ben decides that he's going to end his life, and then they they have a shocking news that uh, Ray, the uh, uh, husband of their late daughter, is being released from prison early. 
and uh, he, he went to prison for the murder of, of their daughter. And uh, Ben decides that he, uh, before he kills himself, he's going to, to uh, exact vengeance on, on Ray. A very interesting lot of themes here. Laura Pritchett is with us for the hour, and we are going to uh, talk more about this following a brief break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members in Crumb Brothers Addison Bread at 300 South and 300 West in Lagan. Open Monday through Saturday until 3, offering a platter cookies and brownies, sandwiches and box lunches. Information at crumbrothers.com. Hi, this is Bill McLaughlin, inviting you to join me in exploring the music of Artists in Exile, that extraordinary group of composers who came to America propelled by the Russian Revolution and then the rise of fascism and World War II. We gave these artists a safe port in a storm and they gave us their music from the concert halls to Hollywood sound stages. Artists in Exile, this week and next on Exploring Music. Weekday afternoons at 1 and Monday through Thursday night at 9 on Utah Public Radio. BBC's. BBC's. Hello, I'm Ros Atkins. Welcome to World Have Your Say. Coming up on Outlook after the news, the Somali journalist who witnessed the murder of his boss. Hello, I'm Steve Evans. Welcome to Business Daily. Coming up, the big fight. This is Owen Bennett-Jones with NewsHour. The BBC is your gateway to the world, and this is your BBC station. Monday through Saturday afternoons at 3 on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. Lara Pritchett is my guest for the hour. She's an award-winning author, most recently of a novel, Stars Go Blue. It's uh, set in Colorado, as are many of her works. That's where she lives, a beautiful place in northern Colorado. And uh, the novel uh, treats uh, Rennie and Ben Cross. They are an elderly couple, uh, estranged, living on opposite ends of their sprawling ranch. Ben is facing Alzheimer's disease and is uh, slowly receding into the dementia. Uh, he's decided to kill himself, and the news comes that uh, Ray, the abusive husband of their late daughter, is being released from prison early. And so uh, Ben goes out seeking vengeance. Rennie, realizing he's missing in a, in a brutal snowstorm, sets off to either stop or witness her husband's act of vengeance. It's the gripping plot of uh, this novel. Laura Pritchett with us for the hour. You can join the conversation if you would like at 1-800-826-1495, 1-800-826-1495. Or you can join us at upraxcess at gmail.com. We're on Twitter as well, at Utah Public Radio. So, Laura Pritchett, uh, this uh, interviewer in this uh, Rocky Mountain News um, interview, uh, Patty Thorne's her name, she asked a question I think you maybe get a lot. Western writers do tend to get this, the people who set their, uh, their novels, as you do, in, in rural Western America. Um, here's the question. People tend to idealize uh, what they see as a sort of free-spirited life, but the rural characters in your fiction face all sorts of problems. Uh, and then you go on, go on to talk about you're trying to represent the West as it really is. So... What what do you what would you want to tell people about uh, how the West really is? Well, I think we were in danger for a long time. Uh, our literary West was in danger of mis, uh, mythologizing the West and being very nostalgic and painting it only one way. Um, you know, and frankly, for a long time there were only stories of men, and they were or mostly stories of men, and they were quiet and stoic and had a sidekick and a woman and. Um, and that was the story, and those were good stories, and there's been a lot of great literature that came out of the West. 
there are, however, other stories. And in the last decades, I feel like there's been a wonderful and enormous push to talk about the stories that uh, have not been a part of that tradition and that discuss the West as it really is. And that includes poverty and alcoholism and mess and love stories and good things and neighbors helping each other. So just a more complete portrait of of all the variations. Um, and I hope my book does that. I hope all my works do that. I'm always very cognizant of trying to write out of the myth and and tell a truer story. You, you say it as well, and I think I've seen this misconception a little bit. You say one conception is that rural people are this hick group, when in fact most are very, very smart people. Absolutely. There's also this idea that ranchers are some kind of hick group. Uh, the, the ranchers I know have degrees in animal science and plant science and, uh, you know, GPS systems and so on. And I feel like New York and some, you know, I'm going to poke at them a little bit. I think they deserve it. They sometimes want to uh, not... Um, fully realize or accept the education and sophistication of Westerners and what we need to do in order to make thriving landscapes and policy decisions and uh, so on. So, mm-hmm. what, what do you think is, uh, in this interviewer talks about loneliness, maybe the stereotype is that people, you know, in the rural areas are more lonely. You go on to say, you know, people on Larimer Street can be lonely as well, uh, speaking of Denver. Um but I wonder, I don't know, is there something different about character of rural people? We've talked about ranching. Is there, you know, I wonder if you compare and contrast that. Well, there is a different quality to loneliness. For example, my book, Sky Bridge, my second novel, uh, it's about a young mother, almost a teen mother, and it's a coming-of-age story. She's raising a child that's not her own. And her car breaks down. And when her car breaks down in the middle of eastern Colorado, that's very different than your car breaking down in a city they both it's both they both stink (laughs) but it's a different situation and you you are more self-reliant you have to know what to do um and that's true for these characters as well i think in the west we are we are defined by our space and the great distances between us at times Mm -hmm. Uh, and it it does mark who we are Uh, a strong theme in this and in most of your books is you could call it nature writing, observations of nature. You're, you're out in nature, you love it, as, as most of us do. Um, and in this interview, I, I, it was very interesting. You talk about an experience, I don't know if you remember this, where you were, I can't remember which story this was. You were working on a story, you took a walk, you say, to try to work out the ending. You were walking near a pond, kept hearing a strange noise. I don't know if you remember this. I do, yes. What do you tell that story? Sure. Well, I was working at the ending of a story, and I, and I was walking, and I, I kept hearing this little rustling noise. I thought it was maybe mice or some little creature, but there was too much of it, and, and I had to pay attention and look. And I realized it was the, just the start of the popping and zinging of ice as it melts along the edge of a bank of a waterway. And uh, it's, with writing and with experiencing life, I think it's noticing the details and then delighting in them. I was just so struck with the beauty of this noise, this slight crackling and shuffling as things, as, as you know, water molecules started to uh, melt and turn from ice to water. Um, and the natural world is, is 
paramount in my own life. I I couldn't be very mentally well without a lot of space and time in the outdoors and um and I and I am kind of joking about that, but just the being outside is very important to me and mm. um settles my soul and keeps me very happy. So of course it's important in my work as well. And, and and this occasion, and this is where perhaps you and I would differ. You say you sat down and just listened to that for hours, mesmerized. <laughs> I could see myself saying, "Oh, that's that's interesting," and you know, moving on. <laughs> I don't know if you had heard the particular qualities uh-huh. of things and zaps and slushes, you might sit for hours too. It was it was just one beautiful, small, but important moment. You want to say it made me think of how someone like that could sit and listen, just find enough beauty and meaning in that simple noise to get up and go on. Well, I think that's what most of us have to do at some point. Uh, life throws things at us, and it's the being grateful for the, the beautiful small moments and what the natural world offers us that continue to inspire and instruct. Yeah. Do you, do you think... I, I don't know. It, it seems to be pers- differences in personality in, in some cases. Some people very closely observe the natural world around them. Others don't. And I wonder what people who closely observe and really immerse themselves in it get out of that that the others don't. I think it's a deeper love. I think it's the same with a, with a human being. If we notice who that person is and really try to see them and pay attention to the small nuances... We can love deeper. We can love more fully. And it's the same with the natural world. The, the more we see, the more we can see, and the more curious we get. I have one saying in one of my books, um, curiosity is the best definition of love. And that strikes me as very true. The things we're curious about are the, and the people we're curious about are generally the people we love uh, and the things we love. I do think that we can train ourselves to see better and notice more. I don't think it always comes naturally or that you're just born with this quality to really pay attention to details. I think throughout my life I've tried really hard to see and then see better, see more, see deeper, see, see more fully. Yeah, there, there are some definite advantages in, in living, living close to the natural world. You, uh, I love this quote. You say you live in the foothills in northern Colorado. You love it. You love that the principal sends home notes that say there's been a bear or a mountain lion spotted in the area, and can you please walk your kids to the bus stop? <laughs> yeah, that's, right. that's the kind of area I want to live in. And the principal at the school does regularly send out notes yeah. like that. <laughs> that really, are, that really happens. there are mountain lions okay, and yeah. in the area. Yeah. You're, you're not concerned about your children? I mean, if you have to walk them to the, the bus stop, I guess you just train them. I guess you have to train them to watch out for things. Oh, sure. I think nature is safer than people in general. Yeah. Uh, and they're teenagers now, so they mm-hmm. could whack the bear across the nose. But um, <laughs> they've grown up in the natural world. They're very comfortable in it and uh, uh, could hike and camp and snowshoe with the best of them and know how to take care of themselves. Mm. Uh, Rick Bass, reviewing your book, uh, he, he says that to him, this territory in, in, in your book, your novel, maps the triangular boundaries, he puts it, between regret, endurance, and hope. I don't know if you see that as well. I hope so. I, uh, I thank him for that generous quote and the others who have uh, said nice things about my book as well. Hope is a very interesting concept in the book. Uh, you don't get the usual thing. I don't think about, oh, let's just hope it gets better. Ben actually has very strong feelings about the, the danger in hoping 
and that it's really an incomplete emotion unless it's accompanied by action. And so part of the book, it rests on the theme of, um, he sees at a big church, he sees a sign outside that says, courage is fear that has said its prayers. And uh, he takes that to heart, that he can't just hope his life is going to get better or his family is fine or that his ranch is going to be all right. He has to hope it and then do something about it. Hmm. So the hope has to be accompanied by an action. Uh, where do you think that, uh, to me, that sort of comes from, a, you know, ranching life? You, the, the life you live there, the experience you, you, you have to act. I think that's true. Also, I have to, this is a little off the subject, except not quite, because it's informed a lot of the themes of my work. I had a back injury for several years that was um, so severe I couldn't get up, couldn't move much, and... Um, you know, people would say, oh, I hope it gets better. <laughs> and that mm-hmm. made me crazy. And it made me very aware of what was I hoping for um, and also what did I need to do about it to take care of my body, mm-hmm. which, you know, eventually healed and I'm back, I'm back living fully again. But um, it's hard to have your heart broken by just hoping things will get better and then realizing they're not going to. Mm-hmm. Uh, why don't you tell me a little bit about, um, there, there's, uh, well, there's several major characters, but uh, there's a younger character uh, in the book, a, a granddaughter that uh, that Ben and Rennie both, uh, uh, Jess, I'm talking about, that they're they're worried about. I do like Jess. I like all of the characters so much. I like Ben's poetic nature and Rennie's kind of facts and figures, tough nature. And Jess is the quiet observer of the family. Um, I think she loves fully and deeply, but quietly. And you find out near the end of the book that... Um, Ben has, well, many people with dementia start hallucinating as they get further into the disease. And you can't tell if he's hallucinating her existence or if she's really around helping him as he confronts himself and confronts Ray. Uh, but she's, so she's brave, but she's, she's very quiet and kind of sits at the periphery of the book. I was very interested and touched by the relationship between uh, Rennie and uh, Ben. Rennie is sort of cantankerous and tough, uh, been a, a sort of a gentle soul. He's fading into dementia, and you have a passage uh, where you know you, t- you talk about how Ben and Rennie argued so they could look at each other and know what thoughts were transpiring. Uh, that's you know, I, th- I think you you delineate very nicely this love they have, which has gone through many ups and downs, and now is being severely tested with this this Alzheimer's. Yes, well, yes, thank you for noticing that. Their love is, has seen tough, tough times, but in a certain way that's what makes them able to communicate so well without words, which is, of course, important in a book like this when Ben is losing words and Randy's not so good at saying them anyway. Hmm. We're going to take another break. When we come back, um, I'll ask you, L.R. Pritchett, to uh, uh, maybe read us a passage, something you could uh, choose. So during the break you get to choose something. Um, and I want to move on uh, after that to some very interesting recollections or, or collections uh, that uh, uh, writings you've made uh, about uh, fire in uh, Colorado and uh, fracking and flooding you've uh, written in, in magazines. More following this break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and AreaDeanForshire.net, providing a social media outlet for personalized press releases, business news, business events, and opinions. Information at area-info.net. 
This teenage sax quartet holds a sort of classical music okay, huddle before going on stage. Oh, no, no. Let's go out there. We're going to do our best. There's no pressure. Smile, walk fast. Let's just go out there and have fun. And, you know, above all, I mean, don't rush like we always do. <laughs> we got this. All right. Christopher O'Reilly here. Join me to hear their athletic performance on this week's From the Top. Friday afternoon at 2 and Sunday night at 9 on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. My guest for the hour is Lara Pritchett, who uh, writes uh, mostly about uh, or sets her works in uh, Colorado, where, where she lives. She lives in a beautiful area in northern Colorado. This particular book is about uh, aging ranchers, Rennie and Ben Cross. Ben is uh, descending into Alzheimer's disease and decides he's going to kill himself. Then they get the news that Ray, the abusive husband of their late daughter, is being released from prison early. Uh, it turns to plans of vengeance. Ben heads out into a brutal snowstorm. Rennie follows him, sets out to either stop or witness her husband's act of vengeance. And uh, we have been talking about the novel Stars Go Blue. And I wonder, Laura Pritchett, if you have a, a passage you'd like to read for us. I would. Thanks for asking. If you don't mind, I'd like to just read the first opening uh, paragraphs of the book itself because I think it presents the situation and gives a sense of Ben's voice. Great. Um, I'm just going to read from, from the very beginning. The fields are poured ice, rippled and waved as if a frozen lake. Ben considers the way the sun has melted and the earth absorbed, the snow that fell months ago, which is how such strange patterns got created. But he also entertains the idea that his pastures have reverted in time to the great sea they once were. Ben has been partial to water, always, which is why life gets measured in terms of irrigation and rainfall and acre feet and even the dry, rainless days needed for baling hay. Even now, he considers the watersheds in his brain, how water moves through tissue, how rivers of electricity pulse in stops and starts. The pastures have never been this way, so icy, and it makes walking hard. There are no cattle to check, no fields to irrigate, nothing to doctor or wean or birth, and yet he wants to walk anyway, down the iced-over dirt road to the back of his ranch, even though the walking is tough because this year the snow has not melted as it should. He has that memory thing. He can't remember the name, and he knows it's normal to be able to remember his childhood, but not yesterday, and not, on occasion, his wife's name, or the name of this daughter walking beside him. He's not supposed to feel bad about the things he can't remember, although he is allowed to feel bad about the fact that this disease only gets worse. Deeper still, he has clarified that he's allowed the terror and claustrophobia of wanting to say words that are dammed up inside. She comes more often now, this daughter, she says to walk her dog, a huge yellow puppy that is supposed to bring you things but does not. Just like his brain, this dog doesn't work right. Hmm. And I'll stop yeah, there. Yeah, very, very good. That, it, does, it does really get you into Ben's character. And, and there's an ongoing theme of water. Which, That's which, right, because water is, of course, important to all of us in the West. But, so it's there in actuality, but it's also meant to be a metaphor Music and water are how Ben perceives his brains and his memories as working. Sometimes the memories flood in uh, like water, and sometimes they dry up, and sometimes his brain feels very dusty, he says, mm-hmm. and so there's a complete lack of water altogether. And so I wanted, because water is so important in my life and in any 
Westerner's life. Uh, I wanted to use it in as many ways as I could. Very touching that he that he writes these notes. Uh, one note's very that he has in his pocket, and he fingers it a lot. And you say he fingers it because it's calming, it stalls the terror. It says, I am married to Rennie, Carolyn equals daughter, who's married to Dell, Rachel equals dead daughter, four grandchildren, Jack, Leanne, C's, saying for Carolyn, Billy and Jess, R's, saying for Rachel. Um, he, he handles this note, and I guess that helps him to, as you say, uh, calming and installs the terror. That's right, and he calls it a slice of tree, and that, that was something my dad used to say is that uh, he couldn't remember the word for paper, so he'd say, you know, the slice of tree, and he would hold out a piece of paper, and I would just be so delighted and uh, proud of him. It's such a beautiful phrase uh, or way of finding language. Um, but all of us probably write lists to keep things straight, but it's true that people in the early stages of Alzheimer's uh, need and like lists uh, as you, for the obvious reasons, is that the more sense you can make of your life and the more you can remember who you're responsible for and what you're supposed to be doing, the better you feel. Now, you said your your father has progressed. Uh, he no longer, I guess, uh, has moments of clarity? Uh, he can sometimes find language, and he'll, you know, the other day he said, he said, I don't know who you are, but you're a very nice young lady. Mm, and then mm-hmm. he tried to tell me something, uh, and I couldn't understand what he was saying, so we started to just whistle. Yeah. And that's something we enjoy doing together. So he he does he responds to music. He does, and I find that unusual because he wasn't a big fan of music in his in his previous life. But uh, now it brings him a lot of joy. His eyes light up anytime he hears something. Hmm. I wonder if I could make a transition now to an article you wrote in I think this is Salon magazine about fire. We were you know we all have to deal with fire in the West. I think this is a couple of years ago, where you're. Your ranch, your parents' ranch nearby, was threatened by by fire there in northern Colorado. Uh, you say in the article, your, my parents' ranch is nearby. By the time we arrived, other evacuees were already congregating at the lighted kitchen. Their animals were being unloaded, too, a blind horse, donkeys, dogs. My mother made coffee. My father stood at the window watching the plumes of smoke, confused not only by his Alzheimer's, but by this sudden onslaught. Uh, very confusing and, and must have been a terrifying time. It was. We've had quite a trial here in this part of Colorado, and as have many other people. Um, we had fires one year and then flooding the next, and the flooding was particularly bad because there wasn't any, uh, all the trees were gone in the root systems. There was just a lot of draining of dirt into the rivers, which made it uh, even harder. So I've written about the fires and the flooding and um, how people have to keep... Uh, using my parents' ranch as a go-to place. Uh, it's kind of a community hub of sorts, which is wonderful, but certainly confusing for my father when a whole bunch of people show up in the middle of the night with animals. And uh, we drove out in the middle of the night after uh, putting on the sprinkler system, and we had chickens on our lap and dogs and a computer and you know anything we could toss into our to car at the very last minute. The fire was just coming down the mountainside right at us. So. And then you describe the you know sort of the conflicting the debates that that always go on, and and you say you purposely don't live up in the up in the trees you know for for that reason, uh, but yet the fire seems to you know find you or almost find you, but uh, some complain about lack of prescribed burns, uh, some complain about lack of a preparedness plan, uh, and then of course there's praise uh, for the uh, for the firefighters. 
That's right. Well, those of us in the West, because we live so close to the natural world, we're bound to be influenced by its natural needs, fire, flood, and so on. Uh, And making smart decisions. I mean, if you love a place, you want to protect it. If you love a person, you want to protect it. So all of us are fighting to protect these spaces and places of the West, but that's not always easy. It's not always easy to know what's best for our forests or our waterways. And um, as someone who's been involved with environmental issues in the West from a very early age, you know, I've just come to understand more and more how complicated it it is, uh, which doesn't mean we should give up fighting and working for what's right, but often there are no easy answers. Yeah. And then later on, you did a uh, very visceral way. Um, you, you talk about how this affected you. I'll just read this paragraph and have you respond to this. Um, I, 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 can't, I can't even imagine. And you get into talking about that phrase, can't even imagine. Um, you said, the biggest shift occurred in my body. It was painful. The real tangible, excruciating anxiety that occurs when you can no longer self-guard or self-protect. You want to talk about the guy at the post office standing in line with me to get our undelivered, undeliverable mail who stared at me blankly and simply said that his home was gone, just gone. He had no insurance. And I thought, you say, we humans can't truly embrace every horror or else we'd be submerged in a nanosecond by the unspeakable suffering that this world offers. But at times like this, it does just that. Embrace the unspeakable suffering that is everyone, including starving children half a world away. Suddenly it was all in my heart there at the line of the post office. As much as I asked my mind to send me on a tangent, it simply would not. It could not, or would not. Um... And, and, and after a while, you have a protective coating that you talk about that, but, uh, but in, in the midst of that, that, your own personal terror, you connect, I guess. That's, that's right, and I suppose that's true for all of us, but, uh, you know, it's been well established in the films, uh, field of psychology that we all have a protective measures that our brain um, uses to keep us from feeling every bit of suffering that we witness or know is happening in the world. Uh, but from time to time, those shields come down, and for me at least, it's always a time of um, stuns me into silence and, and grief and sorrow, but the same way that I get stunned into joy and happiness when I'm listening to the ice crackle on the, on the ditch. Uh, I just feel very alive and very open, and it can almost bring me to my knees, but you know, I don't think any of us would trade those moments. Hmm. Uh, it's better to feel it all than to, to not feel anything. Yeah, yeah, I guess that's true. I'd like to end the program, we just have a couple minutes left, uh, by making a, uh, you know, a whiplash-inducing uh, segue here to dumpster diving. <laughs> You've, in fact, written a book, or uh, contributed, uh, written a book, I think, uh, Going Green, True Tales from Gleaners, Scavengers, and Dumpster Divers. Oddly enough, yesterday we ended the program with, uh, with dumpster diving. Talked to a gentleman in Salt Lake City who, who does this. Uh, you, you, uh, you do this? In fact, I, I think I read that your, your, your clothes, your children's clothes, you, you get from the dumpster. I do, and I enjoy it. And there's a university right nearby, so it provides plenty of clothing and games and other random miscellaneous stuff. I'm just a proponent of of reusing, and I wish our culture thought it was weird to keep going. Our culture thinks it's weird to dumpster dive, but instead I think it's weird to keep buying new stuff, um, you know, and keep making new things out of aluminum and uh cotton and everything else that depletes the planet. So I'm just a proponent of reusing and gleaning, 
recycling whenever possible. And the kids and I have always, it's, <laughs> some people go to Disneyland, we go dumpster diving, and we have a blast. <laughs> now, there, there is a stigma associated with it in some quarters. You, I don't know if you come up against that. To, to, to you, I guess, we should all be dumpster diving. Well, it would be fun to see more people out there. But if I worried about stigmas, I wouldn't be writing any of the things I do. I just, mm-hmm. uh, I'm very happy um, meeting the critical eye of others and shrugging it off because I just feel like it, um, that we all need to find our bravery in that regard and do what we think is right, regardless of, of how we get judged. And it certainly is true, I think, as you say, our culture throws a lot of stuff away, and that's that's probably a comment on our culture. We are out of time. Um, the novel is Stars Go Blue. Uh, the author is Laura Pritchett, and she has been our guest for the hour today. Thanks so much. Thanks so much for having me. It's been an honor. And uh, join us tomorrow for Access Utah. Thanks for listening today. Deseret News columnist Steve Eaton. This is not what summer is supposed to look like. On December 31st, as you formulated your diet plan while eating nachos, you envisioned yourself relaxing on the beach right now and making nearby Bowflex models envious. Now, you're realizing that the two pounds you have lost so far aren't going to make it easier to get into a swimsuit. Your plan has not worked. The reason your diet has not worked is because it was made up by a skinny person. I like the books that fit people write about dieting, but just for the first chapter. It's in the first chapter that the author explains that it's not your fault that you're overweight. The only reason you are overweight is you have been neglecting basic dieting blood type principles long practiced by the wolverines in the wild. You've been ignoring the simple truths Mother Nature teaches us. It's when the details are presented that the trouble starts. One friend gave me a book that looked very promising. It told me that I wouldn't even have to diet to get fixed. I would just have to make lifestyle changes. I knew from past experiences that lifestyle changes is just code for stop eating pizza. Yet I wanted this book to work. It had a picture on the back of the book of a happy fit guy just kicking back and relaxing on his lawn. All was well until I got to a chapter about working out. The author wrote that if you worked out intensely for 90 minutes and behaved yourself for a week, there was no reason you couldn't treat yourself to a heaping half cup of ice cream. A heaping half cup of ice cream? There's no such thing as a heaping half cup of ice cream. That's why I decided to share with you a simple diet designed by an overweight person that I know will work just as well as the Wolverine Wild Animal Diet or any other diet out there. First, I'll share two foundational principles that you should understand. One, pizza is good. God gave us pizza so that we could deal with political campaigns, reality television, and traffic without hurting each other. If someone tells you that pizza is bad and off limits, make her go sit in the corner and eat celery. Understand when you lose weight, skinny people will tell you that's just water. It's as if they think you went outside and spit for an hour just to impress them. If you lose weight, you lose weight, period. What I'm about to outline is not a lifestyle change. It is a diet. This is based on the premise that you truly want to lose weight. Here's how you lose weight on the Steve Eaton reality diet. One, you should exercise and eat healthy things. When you're feeling strong, that's the time to run with it. Eat an apple, an orange, a salad, some twigs, or a frosted fruit tart. Fit people are right. If you drop something, you should be able to bend over and pick it up without blacking out. Two, 
If you really want to eat food that tastes good, slice off a tiny bit of the good food. One sliver of chocolate is not going to contain any calories. In fact, you can eat an entire pan of brownies this way without gaining any weight. If you are with judgmental fit people, don't eat tasty food in front of them. Tell them you're on a diet. Skinny people are very nice if they truly believe you are suffering. If you want to impress them, pull a piece of celery out of your pocket and turn down the chocolate cake. They love to see overweight people eat celery. You can buy a donut and chocolate cake on the way home. 5. Don't go sharing this diet with your slender, bowflex friends. They will not understand it. It will make them seriously angry. Don't let them bother you. Just go buy a piece of celery for your pocket and don't forget to spit as you walk to and from the store. You're on your way to your own bowflex body. Remember, it's not your fault that you're fat. You're only overweight because you have never heard of the Steve Eaton reality diet before. Now, go have some pizza. This is Steve Eaton. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Logan Regional Hospital, hosting the annual Catch a Grand Fondo and Outdoor Expo on July 11th and 12th. 50 and 100 mile courses open to all riders where both racers and recreational riders participate. Registration and more information at catchgrandfondo.com. And USU's Lyric Rep, presenting tons of money. Aubrey Allington, a broke inventor, inherits money only to discover he won't see a penny. He hatches a harebrained shame to fake his own death and claim the money. June 19th through July 31st. Information at arts.usu.edu slash lyric. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1 Logan, KUSK HD1 Vernal, KUSL HD1 Richfield, KUST HD1 Moab, KCEU Price, and KUSU FM HD1 Logan.